Like History Always, the podcast. Here's Clinton Yates. It's, it's that time of year. Summer is winding down. The school year is around the corner. And those last projects that you wanted to get done before the world goes back to crazy, for whatever reason, are real. So the juices are flowing. As a result, I thought I'd bring in a couple creatives who are really doing it to inspire and instruct folks on just how they move. And before we go, we'll tribute a couple legends from our time. R-E-S-P-E-C-T might be the most famous seven letters in black American music history. The late Aretha Franklin's legacy will never be matched, but on Friday, United Artists released the biopic Respect, starring Jennifer Hudson, which, according to the studio, follows the rise of Aretha Franklin's career from a child singing in her father's church's choir to her international superstardom. I sat down with Harvey Mason Jr., a music producer turned songwriter turned movie producer, who's behind the film and talked about his path from playing Hall of Fame coach Lute Olson at Arizona to being CEO of the Recording Academy and running the Grammy Awards. Harvey, I'm going to tell you a little secret. So I got your bio, I got the pitch, I heard about the movie, and you know what I did? I did nothing. I was like, this dude is too impressive. I've heard what I've heard. I want him to tell me who he is. Good-looking brother with a smooth-talking voice. Tell me something about where you're from and where you are and who you are off the rip. I'm joking. I didn't do nothing, but I'm going to say it like that. I'm excited to be on the show, fan. Definitely listen to what you've done, seen on so many things over the years. So it's great to be here. Uh, happy to talk about everything. The Aretha, I know you mentioned. Uh, I'm sorry we didn't get a chance to, to set you up with a screening of it yet, but I'm really excited for you to see it. Uh, a lot of exciting things going on in, in my world, so happy to chat about all of it. Glad to hear it. Nothing wrong with that, but I think the basic thing I set up that you might not have heard, but that I will repeat is, flatly, who are you? You know, a lot of folks don't necessarily know who a lot of people are around in these streets, and after reading everything you've done and everything you've been a part of, please explain to people what you do and who you are and where you're from. Sure. That's, that can take up the whole time for our, our chat here, but I... Uh... <laughs> You know, I'm a music producer and a film producer. I'm also the CEO of the Recording Academy, which puts on the Grammys. I guess the simplest explanation for the job of a music producer is somebody who basically starts with nothing and hands in a song or sometimes a record uh, to a label or to a streaming uh, platform. Uh, we will do everything from write the song to work with the labels on the budget to bringing in the musicians, casting the people who play it, working directly with the artists to make sure their performance is you know, the best they've ever done, and then ultimately mixing, finishing the song and turning it in. Uh, music producer is very similar to a director on a movie set. So they start with nothing, finish a movie. That's what a music producer does for music. That sounds simple to say to the average person, but in terms of what it takes to do to be able to get in that position to do all of that, I said that sounds simple to say in terms of the average person to do per se, but in terms of what it takes to get to be able to be in a position to do all of that. Tell me a little something about where you come from, where to start, how did it happen, how do you know what you're doing when you're in this position, you know, just in general, you know what I'm saying, you're a pro, talk to me. Yeah, so I grew up in a real musical household. My mom and dad were both musicians, so I was very lucky to kind of be around great music and great musicians my whole life. Uh, and I started playing piano at a really early age, writing songs, just learning things by ear. I was really intrigued by music and uh, being able to like emotionally express myself and tell stories through lyrics and music. And then I went through early part of my life as an athlete. You know, I was 
I was playing basketball, mm. high school All-American, and ended up going to the University of Arizona where I played four years of basketball. I went to the Final Four, teammates with Steve Kerr and Sean Elliott and other great players like that, and then had a, a career-ending knee injury my senior year before I was able to pursue my dreams of playing professionally. And uh, I recovered from my torn ACL and started writing music again, which is something I had been doing as a, as a youngster. And, you know, music was really my therapy. It was my recovery from, you know, a devastating dream crushing injury at that point, not to be over dramatic about it, but, you know, I really wanted to play, play basketball. So I started writing music. People started hearing my songs, traveling back and forth to LA, sleeping at friends' house, you know, the typical hustle, sleeping in my car, throwing cassettes at executives. And somebody heard my music and gave me a job and paid me a few hundred bucks. And I said, I'm rich. I'm on my way. And that started my music journey. I'd like to believe that nobody listening to this podcast knows what a cassette is. So to explain the <laughs> grind in terms of the basic level of you get out of college, you start. And I say that because a lot of people don't really understand where anything starts from. They're like, oh, yeah, I know a bunch of things. I can figure this out. But they don't really know what it takes to get a foot in the industry and not. That's not the only reason why I'm talking to you, but for somebody like you who grew up in a music household, what was the first thing that made you think, yo, I could do it in this industry, the industry not being basketball? Well, you're never really sure, no matter how much experience or training you have in this industry, because it's subjective. You know, everybody has an opinion. You're doing something that's not, it's not like sports where you put the ball through the hoop and you get two or three points. It's, it's very factual. Music is up to the taste and discretion of, you know, we used to call them the gatekeepers or the people who determine your career. So growing up and coming up, my only objective was to use my, my hustle and my grind, as you, as you called it, to try and get ahead of, of everyone else. I was very competitive, and that's not commonplace in music. It's common in sports, and I, I had that mentality around basketball, you know, sacrifice, staying in the gym, lifting extra weights, running extra sprints, outworking my opponent, being the hardest worker on the team. That was, those were always the things that were running through my mind. And I think I carry that across into my music career and into that industry. Most people in music are very artistic and they're very creative, right? And they're like, oh, I don't feel the mood today or I want to go to the club tonight or I want to do this. Whereas I was approaching it from like, I used to get up on Christmas morning and practice basketball because I knew everybody else was open and present. And that's the stuff I loved. So I did the same thing in music. I would go to the studio the night of the Grammys. I would go to the studio at the night of the biggest concert to make sure I was working while everyone else was resting. So a lot of my grind involved like sacrifice, persistence, uh, really, really being dedicated to the craft of being a great songwriter and music producer and trying to beat everybody else at all times and everything I did. As somebody that's been in radio for a long time, I understand the gym rat value of being in the studio all the time. Who was the first person in your life that made you recognize the value of that level of effort? I think it was my father, honestly, Clinton. My dad was a musician, but for some reason he knew a lot about sports and life. And he always just drilled in my head the value of hard work and setting goals and, and sacrificing. And I saw him practice. He was a world-class musician, still is. And uh, I would see him practice and go all hours of the night and just get in these crazy loops where he would be so obsessive about doing something, whether that was running or cross-country skiing or horseback riding, whatever he did, he was like, I got to do it really well. I've got to be the best. And so that was my first introduction to, like, if you're going to do something, do it really well. Then I had an incredible high school basketball coach, and I had a great program that I played for. Coach Gofrida was somebody that, that pushed me and 
made sure he used to say, no matter what you do, you have to do it to the best of your ability. He said, the way you do everything is the way you do anything. So like he said, if you're painting a fence, you got to paint all the way up under the bottom. You got to paint the cracks. You got to lift up the leaves, paint under the leaves. Don't do it halfway. And then I got to college. I played for a guy named Lute Olson who raised my bar even Hold higher. Hold on. And, a, a guy named Lute Olson. Lute Olson is yeah. not just a guy named anything. Lute Olson, pardon my French here, this is my own podcast, is Lute fucking Olson. All right, tell me more about what it was like to be recruited and to play for that guy, a legend with a great head of hair as well, the late great. It was life-changing, and it was everything to me. It, it really made all the difference in the world to everything I've done since the day I met him honestly, not to oversell it, but he influenced and impacted everything that I've done in my career, just as far as, like I started talking about the mentality and the expectation and what you expect out of yourself and the people around you. And he held us to those standards from the day I, I met him and he recruited me in high school. He would call me after my games and start talking to me about my, you know, how I performed. He said, not about the points. What was your effort? What, how, how did you work? How was your defense? The things that I wasn't even thinking about. And that kind of extended out across to the rest of my career. And while I was playing at Arizona, I spent a lot of time with Steve Kerr, who's another guy like, whoa, that's just not some guy, Steve Kerr. This guy, everything he's done in life, he's been extremely successful at. And he was one of the people that I came in under. He was two years older than me. And I witnessed his work ethic and I witnessed his focus and dedication to the craft of basketball, but really anything that he did in life. So I had great people around me. Uh, to set an example and blaze a trail for me. And I was emulating those people and just trying to always be better, always trying to raise the bar and always trying to bring others along with me. And, and that was something that Coach Olson taught all of us as athletes. I'm sure Steve would tell you the same thing. He learned that from Coach Olson. I'm not going to stick on the sports thing too often, but Steve Kerr, Never heard of him. I'm joking. My question is this. How good were you? It's a question I ask to every athlete in real life. How good were you, player? As a basketball player, you know, I was, I would say I was an amazing high school basketball player. I was, you know, I led the state of California in scoring a couple of years and uh, was recruited by pretty much every school. When I got to college, I was a good college player. I wasn't an incredible college player. Um, athletically, I was, I think, if I may say so, I was pretty gifted, but um, didn't always land in the right spot with the way we chose to play basketball at Arizona and didn't exactly align with my style. And that kind of had an impact on my success in my college career. But having said all that, Clinton, I don't think my basketball career pales would pale in comparison to you know, the other things that I gained in college. So looking back, you're saying, well, you weren't a great, great college player. You weren't Sean Elliott or you weren't Kenny Lofton or Steve Kerr. But the things I learned from my experience there were so much more valuable than becoming an amazing college basketball player. So for me, it was a perfect situation, a great scenario. The reason I asked that question is because I want to understand, at least in my life, what your personal sort of advancement is on your standards of greatness. I'm from D.C., all right, so I understand politics on a very different level. If you were the best high school player and just set in California, you understand excellence on a different level as well. And so in terms of what you took from that to where you are in the business now, in terms of understanding excellence, how did you know the first time you heard something that was really actually good and not just something you like well that's a, another long journey because when i first started coming to la i finished 
playing basketball. I kind of muddled around being depressed for a couple of years because I couldn't play. But for those next two years, I started commuting back and forth to L.A. And I was playing everybody that I could find my music. And that was part of the, the hustle I spoke about was like following people home from work or showing up at concerts or stalking artists at hotels and you know putting things in the, under their doors. And I was pushing my music to everybody that I could get my hands on but I didn't realize it wasn't ready. And so you're asking the question, when did I realize? I didn't realize for a long time. And even with all the hustle I was doing, I finally met a person who pulled me into his office. You know, this is a turning point for me as well. He had the grace and the generosity to say, I love your hustle, but your music isn't right. Come sit with me. Let me tell you something. Mm. So I sat with him and he played me a couple of records. And then he played my song and he played another song from one of his artists and he played another one of my songs. We went back and forth. And he said, do you hear the difference between the drums? Do you hear the difference between the vocals and the chords and the mixing? And he pointed out everything about it. And I said, yeah, I hear the difference. And he said, well, if you can hear a difference, then yours isn't ready. Yours isn't good enough. You need to go back and work until your music sounds as good, if not better, than what I just played you. And then come back when you're ready. So that took me another year. I went back to Tucson. I was working, perfecting what I was doing, working on my production, analyzing, listening, learning more to other things. I was working in a vacuum before that. I didn't compare myself. So once he pointed that out to me, it took a year and then I came back. And at that point, I realized I had learned what I needed to learn. I had upgraded my skill set. I had changed the way I made music. And it was a tipping point for me. And he heard it and he said, you know what? You did what I was looking for you to do. I knew you had the talent, but you hadn't figured it out yet. You've not figured it out. And he paid me, you know, a little bit of money to do a remix. And that was my first check as a, as a you know, professional music producer. Let's talk a little bit more about that. And I don't want to give away your age because you're a gangster. But what era of music did that remix come in? Not necessarily the year I would love to know. Yeah, no, that was in the 90s. You know, uh, I finished playing basketball in, in 1990. And then it took a few years to get to that point where I was coming out to L.A. And I think that would have been, you know, mid to late 90s. Not mid 90s. And so music was, you know, it was it was hot music being made in that period, in my opinion. It was You're a great damn R&B, right. Which, That's why I'm asking. I just watched Versus last night, so I'm fired up. I want to know what you were a part of, player. <laughs> yeah, that's it. That was To me, that was like a great period in music, and that's why it was so competitive, and that's why I took it so seriously, because I loved the music that I was hearing. I was listening to Jodeci and New Edition, and I, I mean, I loved a lot of music in that era. And some of the producers, Teddy Riley, Jimmy Jam and Terry Lewis, Babyface, these guys were some of the guys that I loved and looked up to. So I don't know if you, it seemed like you might like some of that too. Yeah, <laughs> yeah Teddy Riley, Babyface, no, nah, I'm not familiar with their work. Come on, man. This is great <laughs> stuff, man. I appreciate that. The reason why I ask is because, you know, a lot of people, like I said, they hit me up all the time. They're like, how you do it? And I tell people quite often, you stick with what you got, you stick with your craft. If somebody who knows what they're talking about is going to tell you something that's going to make you better, well, you better stick with it, and it just might work. It doesn't mean it's always going to work. You said that you remixed something and you knew it was going to work. When did you get to the point now where you realized that, like, hey, I run a couple other things, too, that are more than just any particular song, but how we run productions overall? You know, it came around that time where I started getting the attention of people that were hearing my music and hearing my songs and saying, hey, who is this guy? Uh, and shortly after that, remix i ended up working with brandy on you know her first project and at that point i started to get a confidence and you started to get in a feel and what happens and i'm not sure it doesn't happen with athletes but it happens with 
creators is I'm creating what I think sounds good to me, Mm -hmm. right? I'm not trying to match what you like or what is on the radio. I'm trying to make stuff that I think is hot and that I would want to ride around to. And at a certain point, your tastes and what I like hopefully align with the public or with people who might be your consumers. And right around that time period, I felt I got in a good zone and a good spot where I could make music that I liked and I wasn't externally comparing myself to people. I wasn't trying to like scientifically figure out what was working on the radio. I was just making music that I liked and songs that I was liking and songs that I was writing that I was pumped about. People were, were receiving, they were listening. They were like, oh, I love that song you wrote, Harvey. Can I cut it? And one of those people was Brandy. And to answer your question, that's when I started having the confidence that I could trust what's in my heart, what's in my, you know, in my soul musically and artistically and make it and it would resonate with people. For those who don't understand, there's a lot of things that happen around the music industry. A lot of people write songs. A lot of people produce songs. A lot of artists do not necessarily pick those songs. And to cut it means you want to record it, which means the person who wrote it gets a certain piece. All right. That's a certain value that requires a skill set. Now, that being said, what made you knew that you were as good at writing songs as you were a good at, as good at playing basketball at a certain point in your life? Not that that really matters, but you had been sort of, I don't want to say remunerated on the highest level, but you played a big deal level of ball. And when you get to a certain big deal level of music, life changes. You know what I mean? And I just wonder how those two things sort of dovetailed. And do you think, you know, quite frankly, you're a better music maker than you were a basketball player? I think I definitely made better music than I than I was as an athlete. You know, I did play at a very high level, but I think musically speaking, and I'm not comparing myself to any of these people, but I was definitely, and I'm still in the NBA, if you're comparing it to basketball. Oh, you know, I'm, listen I'm, to this guy, in the league. I love it. I'm in the league. I'm, I'm playing on a good team. You know, I've had a great, long tenure. We've won a couple national championships. That's, to me, that's the way I feel about my music career. Um Basketball-wise, you know, finishing in college, I'm really proud of what I did there. But I think musically, I've been able to continue to have a career. And it's also been, you know, a, there's been a variety around my career. I've been doing r and I've done pop. I've done rock. I've done music for film and TV and, and so many different genres and areas of entertainment that that's something that I'm really proud of. You know, I, I didn't get pigeonholed. I didn't get boxed into just making one kind of thing or doing one kind of project. So. I feel really good about like where I've been as, a, as an artist. Creatively, you look like a happy man, which is something I appreciate a lot, which means that people are listening to you, and it means that you're doing things that make sense for other people. That being said, let's get to the movie. Aretha is a different discussion, you know, in terms of a lot of different things, in terms of what she represents, in terms of what people understand about her, in terms of what she's done. What were your thoughts going into this project? Well, my thoughts on the Aretha project are a lot because I've been working on it for seven years now, eight years, I think. So I was recording and working on music with Aretha and we've been doing that probably for 13 or 14 years. I, over her career, made a lot of records with her and got to be friendly with her. And this is important. People need to know this about you. They need to know where you came from and what made you, you and how you are is so unique. And so eventually I convinced her to, you know, work on a movie together. So, my thoughts on it finally coming out are I'm, I'm really happy. I'm really thankful that her story is going to be heard and seen. I'm sad that she's not here to really you know, celebrate in it and share it with us. But I do think, especially right now in the time we're in, that a story like this is really important because 
there has been so much adversity and so much separation and, and, and divisive behavior by people and, and hardship and COVID and financial insecurity. There's just so much going on in our dang world that when you get a chance to make art that can bring people together or can, can hit somebody on an emotional level that makes an impact, that's something that I want to do and something that I'm proud to be able to do. So I think the timing of this movie is important. The message of it is very motivational, very inspirational. And if you come out of this theater, you're going to leave with a feeling of I can accomplish things. And, and we, we come together and we work together to accomplish great things. So that's my hope and feeling for the film. Harvey, I got to tell you something, which is that I remember when Aretha... I was in a I was in a hotel room in Connecticut doing a show at ESPN and the BBC, the British Broadcasting Corporation, did a whole thing on Aretha. And they went through the whole situation about how the English folk loved her and how she made her moves and how she did this, that, and the third. And the reason I say that is because, like, listen, I'm a black man with two black parents. Aretha was being a part of my household, but I never really knew how much other folks appreciated her until a very recent point in my life. What was it like for you to try to tackle that in terms of the story you were telling overall? Well, I hear you. I think it's been interesting seeing the type of people that Aretha has affected in her life and the impact that she's had. Uh, Definitely, I grew up listening to the music. And it's always a weird phenomenon for me when I'm working with these artists that I've grown up with as a kid and been listening to since birth. And then the next thing you know, they're on the other side of the glass in the recording studio singing in the microphone and their voice is coming through the speakers. It's like, it definitely is shocking. And sometimes you just, you sit still and you're in awe. And that happens you know, quite often in my career, Michael Jackson or Elton John or Aretha or, you know, Whitney Houston, people like that who you just, you know, they're part of, part of of our culture and they're just part of what we do every day in our lives so they've had such an impact on me sounded like an impact on you and it has been interesting to see how far aretha reaches that's all different races all different countries different types of people old young she really has a deep meaning to a lot of people which is why i think her story in this film is important to be told and shared was casting this movie a challenge in your opinion yeah, it was a challenge. It was hard as can be. Uh, the one thing we had going for us was Aretha wanted Jennifer Hudson to play her. And so that was predetermined. Crick Rewind. For real? Like, Aretha wanted Jennifer Hudson to play her. Can you tell me why? What you knew about that? That's Well, not only did she want Jennifer to play her, the only way that she would agree to making the movie was if Jennifer played her. Mm. So she was insistent that Jennifer play her. They had known each other. You know, they were both signed to Five Davis at, at J Records and uh, so there was a relationship between Aretha and Jennifer, uh, also a relationship with me and Jennifer. You know, I did Dream Girls back in 2006 with Jennifer, which was really her first breakout role. Yeah. So I had always thought that Jennifer would be perfect to play Aretha. So between the three of us, we all kind of made that decision early on the process. And when we took the idea to studios, it was with Jennifer's uh, attached to play Aretha. So that part of the casting was not difficult. The rest of it was very hard. Uh, trying to find people that actually can represent realistic people in history is a lot harder than just creating imaginary characters, you know. But uh, Forrest Whitaker, amazing. Wayans is incredible. So we, we found great people. 
Mary Jay's in the film. So I think uh, the cast is, is really special. If I may dig a little deeper on the J-Hood element, because she went through a lot in life, and obviously this is a difficult task. I mean, how did that go in terms of her being able to complete the job? She's obviously an amazing talent on a lot of levels, but, you know, she's gone through it as well. You know what I mean? And living up to the balance of playing Aretha has got to be a lot. What was the support system like in terms of getting all this done? Yeah, and I think that's one of the things that made the casting work so well with Jennifer was that I think there was an understanding between Aretha and Jennifer as far as where they came from. Their upbringings weren't exactly the same, but they had both gone through things in their lives. They both used singing to express themselves. They both used music to heal and, and to get through things, uh, both obviously with massive voices, iconic generational voices. Um, so I think there were a lot of things in common. They had actually sung together on a couple of occasions. So they yeah. did have that relationship. And the other c- common thing they had was Clive Davis. You know, Clive had anointed Jennifer kind of the next big thing. And, and Clive had obviously done the same with Aretha many, many years ago and had worked with Aretha. And then finally, I think because I'd worked with Jennifer for so long, actually for almost 15 years now, and worked with Aretha for so long, there was a, a trust between all of us and an understanding and, and I think a vision for what this could be that everyone was aligned on. So that made it a little bit easier for Aretha and I hope for Jennifer as well. I'm not going to say lucky you because you've obviously worked hard, but you talked about gatekeepers earlier. I mean, come on, man. You know what I'm saying? You're doing it. What's it like to be in this position? You know what I mean? In terms of representing what it is that a lot of folks really have worked their lives for in terms of making it really a package that everybody wants to receive. Yeah, I have to say it's amazing. I, I wake up every day feeling really fortunate. I'm always appreciative and thankful for where I am and what I've accomplished. But I, I also tried my hardest to enjoy the heck out of it. You know, I don't take any of this stuff for granted. None of this is supposed to happen. You're, you're lucky if it does. You work really hard for it, but it's not promised to anybody. And so it sounds super corny, but I do. I wake up and I, you know, I do my morning workout, my stretch. I spend 15, 20 minutes just thinking about where I am. I don't think much about what's happened in the past, but I, a lot of times I think about what I'm working on, how thankful I am, how appreciative I am, the people around me. Uh, I think about what I want to do next. I think about how I can use my opportunity and the things that I've learned to do something else meaningful and impactful. You know, and you were kind enough not to point out my age, but I just, you know, I went past 50 recently. And at that point in your life, you start thinking, what else can you do to leave a mark, not in a selfish way, but more in a give back kind of way. And so being thankful for all the things that I've done, I'm also really excited and driven for the future. And I really want to make sure that I use where I am and what I'm able to do to, to help make things better. You know, that sounds crazy, but I, I think all of us have a chance to make things better or worse. And you kind of, you kind of pick. And through music, I think we have a unique platform and a, an added set of you know, amplification, it's like a super, super sized stereo to be able to just broadcast greatness and change into the world. And so that's what I'm trying to do, both on my personal life, but also through my work at the, at the Grammys and the Recording Academy is I want to make things better and use, use music and use the platform of the Academy to make a difference. This is my penultimate question, but the last question is more fun. The penultimate question is hard. 
the Grammys is kind of in the grinder. You know what I'm saying? Folks who are fans of the, of the culture and fans of the music community don't necessarily love the Grammys right now. And that's not because of what any one person has done. It's because of how the Academy exists. Can you tell me a little something, quite frankly, as a fan of music from black folks, it's going to make me feel a little better about what the Grammys are really doing out here in these streets, and I trust you. Yeah, no, I hear you, Clinton. There's been some of that for sure. It's a 64-year-old organization. I've been the CEO for a few months, and okay. we made some drastic, drastic changes. You have to look at the Academy differently than you have before just because of the things that were changing. I think we're so much more reflective and representative of different genres and different groups of people and music makers. You know, personally, I have a vested interest in making sure things are more diverse because I am a diverse CEO. Obviously you can look at me and answer that. So I come with a different perspective and I come as a creator and I want to make sure that the Grammys are respected. And so my efforts have been around, reaching into the community, many of which are my friends or my peers, people I've worked with, record, you know, artists that I produce records for, and just explain to them that we are doing better. We're changing our membership. We're bringing in uh, different creators, more relevant music makers to really determine what our nominations and who our winners are, which I think will impact our community. But what I also do, Clinton, is talk a lot about what else the Academy does. You know, people get so hot about the, the awards and the trophies, and I get that because... Right. everyone knows I want to win a trophy too, but like that's a part of it. And I tell them what we do with our Grammy show is we, we license it to CBS. CBS pays us and we take that money and we put it back into the music community. So this whole thing is built to serve music people and to give back, you know, advocating and educating and really being a safety net for people who need help. That's what the Academy is about. So I get it. We got to get the awards right. We got to get the nominations right. But We also have to be able to zoom out and see all the really important, meaningful work that we're doing to help a lot of different people. Let's go rapid fire, and these are way more fun questions. Who's your favorite basketball player of all time? LeBron. LeBron is your favorite basketball player? You're a human older than LeBron that thinks LeBron is the best basketball player of all time? I'm shocked. Yeah, I mean, Magic Johnson was always my favorite uh, up until recently. Now I just have so much respect for LeBron and his longevity and his professionalism and his dedication to what he's doing. So I, I've been one over. But it might have a, something to do with my age, Clint, because <laughs> my favorite football player is Tom Brady. So. <laughs> oh, okay. I was going to ask you that question next. Who's your favorite non-basketball athlete? But you answered that. My other question is, who is your favorite artist of all time? And I don't mean the person you think is the best, but your favorite. I couldn't even answer that in a million years. I've had so many experiences with these artists, Clinton, that I've just been blown away by people that have moved me to tears when I've gotten a chance to just spend time with them and listen to them. And like you said, not about their singing, just about who they are as people and what they represent. So I I can't answer that. That's impossible. That's fair. I appreciate that level of intellectualism on the matter because it's an unfair question that I always hope just gets a good answer. But good enough. Last thing I'll ask you, and this is very, 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 very simple. What's your favorite movie, man? That's not simple. <laughs> I work in movies all day. Like, how am I going to answer that? That's the fun uh, part. I'm Clinton Yates. I'll press you just to be stupid. But no, I figured I would ask you on a creative level. All right, let me give you a couple. I'll give you a couple. Yep. Gladiator. I love Gladiator. Okay. Forrest Gump. Love I used Gump. to own Forrest Gump in college, and I would fall asleep to it 
all the time because the way the cinematography moved from scene to scene, it was always not exactly seamless, but it was smooth, you know? And it was just, it was, it's an easy movie on a lot of levels. I love that film. Can't go wrong with Forrest Gump. You also can't go wrong with Back to the Future, number one, not two or three. I'd say those are three of my top movies. Shawshank Redemption is in top five for sure. Yeah. All right, brother. Harvey Mason Jr. Thank you, sir. You're the best. <laughs> Amazing. Thanks. Great to meet you, Clinton. Black History Always, the podcast. Black History Always, the podcast. Here's Clinton Yates. The U.S. women's national soccer team took home bronze from the Olympics this summer, a disappointing finish for some, but they have a larger fight on their hands. LFG, a documentary which stands for Let's F and Go, is an unflinching look at the struggles the female soccer players have gone through to make as much money for doing the same and better job than their male counterparts. The film was released on HBO Max in June, and as part of their rollout, a designer named Lizzie Jordan put together a custom jersey as part of their marketing package. She's worked with Nike, Jordan Brand, Calvin Klein, and Foot Locker, and is, quote, a multidisciplinary artist and streetwear designer. Also, she's from Alabama and started off in criminal justice in college. What a journey. Have a listen. Okay, first of all, I read your bio. It says from <laughs> Alabama to Los Angeles. Tell me about Alabama. What do you want to know? <laughs> what's it What's it like? I'm a brother from D.C., man. I've been to Alabama twice in my life. I ain't got no clue as to what, who. Oh, wow. What yeah. part did you go to when you visit? Um, I went to visit? Mobile once. That's the home of Henry Aaron, you know, and a bunch of other yep. former big leaguers. And I was there for football. And then I went to Tuscaloosa to see a brother named Dylan Smith throw. He played. He threw for Alabama for three years. His mama, his grandmama, and his mom, her mama are all from Alabama, too. So I've been to Tuscaloosa oh, yeah. once and Mobile once. Got you. I actually, I went to Alabama, so I'm very familiar with Tuscaloosa, for sure, um, and Alabama football. Yeah. But um, I'm from Huntsville, which is about a two-hour drive from Tuscaloosa. Um, super amazing city. It's not country. <laughs> that's, that's the first thing I start with, because people automatically assume that if you're from Alabama, you're like... I don't know, living on a farm or something. But honestly, it's your it's your typical sort of suburban city. I grew up in very, very black spaces, predominantly black education, always been pretty active in sports and extracurricular activities. But I mean, I, I love Alabama. It's it's a pretty, it's a slower pace, definitely from DC um, and especially from LA. But it's, it's a good pace that sort of keeps you grounded in a sense of community which is something I really enjoy. And I mean, overall, just a, just a good city. I was surprised a report came out, I think a week ago that said Huntsville is like top three places to live in the U.S. And I was yep. like, oh. so it, it's a good a good combination of things to be there. Not necessarily for me, but <laughs> <laughs> it's, it's a good city for sure. Well, getting back to for you, how did you get into the creative space? I know for a lot of black folks, it is something you either sort of solely do, something you kind of do, and then you decide you want to do it. But for some people, it's also like, well, this was my whole life up until somebody discovered me. You know, what what path did you take towards getting to where you are as a designer? I'm definitely not the person who was, uh, at least I didn't think I was creative my whole life, even though I technically was. Like I played in band and could like read and write music, just different stuff, but I didn't look at that as creativity for whatever reason. Mm. It 
sort of landed when I went to college and I was going for like a whole other practice. I was going for criminal justice and I ended up doing an internship where I discovered design, so to say. I lived with three girls at the time and two out of the three were studying design as a minor. So I already kind of knew about design. I'm in a sorority, so like- Uh-oh, which I'm one? Delta. Okay. <laughs> Delta my sister's Delta. an AKA from Spelman, so. Oh, not, yeah. listen, there's a few AKAs in my life. It's all right, you know what I'm saying, it's all right. <laughs> no, no, they're, they're good people. But yeah, so even within like being a sorority, it's funny because I look back at it now and I was doing a lot of stuff that was creative, like doing like a lot of photography for stuff, just a lot of things that ended up, I look back on, I was like, oh, I was being super creative. So fast forward, I'm doing this internship. I'm trying to figure out where I want to go criminal justice and all of it just wasn't what I expected and what I wanted to do. So design sparked my interest through the internship. And then I went back to school and I took like a, it was design textile course and it just sparked my creativity because I don't think until that point that I actually sat down and view myself as creative. So from there, I ended up going back. I graduated with a criminal justice degree, but I ended up going back to school because I graduated early Yeah. and, and going, to, going the design route. So a piece of it was curiosity and then another piece was procrastination because I didn't know what I was going to do with the criminal justice situation. And I was like, okay, this is a good a good form of figuring it out. And it's funny because I see a lot of people doing that now. It's like grad school. It's like, okay, I don't know what the hell is going on. So I'm just going to go get another degree and, and figure it out. Right, right. <laughs> That's sort of how I landed into it from an educational standpoint. And then from there, it was various remote internships. And then I got an opportunity in California to intern with Disney, which is what brought me to the West Coast and pretty much sparked my corporate creative career. Let's talk a little bit about that because, so, for example, I am a former graffiti artist and graphic designer, and most of the things that I'm drawn to are things that are, like, geared towards that look. But you're telling me that you came to this sort of late, and the reason I ask that is because from a multidisciplinary standpoint, you know, what do you think your sort of feel is considering how you got into this? Because it's, there's so much ground that you cover, you know what I mean? That That is pretty <laughs> tremendous. And I'm, you know, I mean, I mean this honestly, like, you know, where do you feel, you know, I always sort of look at myself as a graffiti artist when I do anything, you know what I'm saying? In terms of what any visual representation is. What's the you part mostly at this point of what, what you put out there? Oh, wait, that's a hard question. Okay, wait, so the... Like, you know, how, okay, so <laughs> let, me, let me explain it this way. I also, like, you know how when you do something for a while, you self-identify as such, you know, even if you do right. other things while you do those things. So... I don't know, a guy who's a basketball player, if he plays a football game, he still probably considers himself a basketball player. You know what I mean? Like, where are you in terms of, like, what you think your most, the biggest part of your design mind is? Oh, that's interesting. I don't think I've tapped into it at, at 100% yet to, to really know. The funny thing is, when I got here and I was interning with Disney, I was, I was interning as a graphic designer, technically. But in the department that I was in, it's like an ideation tank. So it was a lot of like brainstorming, coming up with ideas, a lot of production type of work, like a like pitching work. It was a lot of different type of work. Mm-hmm. And my boss at the time was an executive producer. So she didn't necessarily even know what to do with a graphic designer. So I ended up doing a lot of stuff that technically 
didn't have anything to do with my skill set. And I think that experience mixed with, and I talk about my mom a lot. My mom does a whole lot of stuff. Like my whole life I've seen her and I thought she was so like sporadic and now it all makes sense. But I've seen her do a lot of stuff. And I think as I've gotten older, I've tapped into that. But that first corporate experience let me know how far I could expand, I guess my brain in a sense. And coming from initially a criminal justice background, I think I'm very like left and right brain. So that other side sort of drives my creativity of like, okay, I'm good at, I think I'm good at this one thing, I'm learning this, but then like, how does this translate to this? And then it's like a rolling effect. So I'm always curious of like how different things translate across different mediums and different forms. And maybe because I didn't plan on being an artist that is kind of like, oh, I didn't even really know I was going to be here. So like, let's see where else we can go. And for me, present day, it's, I just like to be challenged. And I like, I like to, I like the idea of exploration and figuring out what I can do. And honestly, like once, for me, like once I do something, not even necessarily for a long time, but for an extended amount of time, it's like, okay, not necessarily being bored with certain things, but being like, how can this expand? And also tying into my experiences in different jobs and really knowing that none of that was just for luck. That yeah. All those things were, were experiences that I need to use for the future. So I, I referenced Disney and like, that's my first job. So I'm thinking like, okay, why was I in a place where I was learning how to build a theme parks and learning like <laughs> experimental design and production design and like how to pitch and how to brainstorm? Like, I don't think all those skill sets came in vain. So now I'm looking like, okay, how do I build my version of a theme park? What does that look like? Right. How do it help in me, you know, coming up with ideas or like even when my team's negotiating, like thinking about different stuff in a different way. And so I don't know, it, it's, it's really like, okay, I just think about how my aesthetic can exist in different worlds and still sort of tie together to one thing, if that makes sense. That makes a lot of sense. I appreciate you thinking about that for me because that's, that, that path is something I think about a lot, especially when folks tell me that it wasn't always their dream gig or whatever. It's interesting to learn how do people get from one place to the other. That being said... How did you end up me linking up with LFG and this HBO gang? Like, what happened there? From they reached out. <laughs> that was that was the first form of communication. They reached out, and I love what what they were doing, what they were asking for. I've designed a jersey before. I with, saw that. Yeah. Uh, yes, with Bleacher Report. So I was familiar with. I was familiar with like the lawsuit with the women's soccer team. I was familiar with like the disparity and like equal pay. And to be honest, when I did the first jersey, like I wasn't familiar with soccer at all. Like I, I played a couple sports, but soccer isn't one. You don't see a lot of black people, especially in the US in soccer. And so I was like, okay, what what's going on where, you know, like what's what's the what's the what's the word? Like what's happening? So I did a lot of research in it and it interests me because one thing that I discovered in regards of like black people in the sport is that it's one of the most expensive sports to play, yeah. which was which was very interesting. Cause I would have, for whatever reason, not even being as familiar with soccer at the time, I would have never guessed it. So that sort of just led me into a lot of research and a lot of interest in that, and just interest in figuring out how do you how do you get in certain spaces, um, and how do you advocate for certain spaces and certain sports. So when this opportunity came, I was already familiar with it. I already knew like the damage that was being done and like the the things that need to be said so it was pretty much an easy 
fell on taking on the project. And the thing that I appreciate about HBO Max and the team behind it is that they're like, hey, you know, for the most part, it's creative control. You can you can do what you want. And for me, I don't consider myself a super like safe person. I would <laughs> describe myself as being a little rough around the edges. <laughs> so if you come to me and say like, we have a thing called Let's Go, and I'm like, okay, and I know <laughs> I know your brand is in tune with my brand, and I can like create what I want to create without feeling like I can't express myself. Yeah, it, w- it was an easy feel. I didn't have to think about it. To that point, how did you choose your color palette? How'd you get? How'd you get? How'd you get it on the paper in terms of what you want? What you wanted to start with? Oh, so it was a combination of the colors that they have for the film. I definitely want to tie in that branding into what I create. But honestly, I just stayed tapped into who I am authentically as an artist and a lot of the different abstract shapes that I use. Anytime I work, really in general, but especially on sport related projects, I'm always thinking about movement and I'm always thinking about what it looks like when somebody's out in the space. And product is something that has been like on my heart for a minute now. Like, okay. If I'm out or if someone is out with this jersey on, how is this going to translate to the outside world? And what's going to be the thing that makes them stop and just stare? And I think the the common line with that, with my work in general, is color. So I was like, okay, I'm just going to make this as bright as possible, but then also keeping it to where, like, a guy would want to wear it. Cause, I almost like, wore mine to brunch yesterday, but I didn't. Well, what do you do? You gotta send us some photos. Um, <laughs> I, I love to see. I love to see men also in different stuff, especially black men. So you gotta, you gotta do that. Okay. Um, I might wear it on TV this week, so look out. Let's hey, even better. <laughs> even better. But yeah, I just wanted to tie in my work as an artist with with what their mission is and keeping in mind the branding and the message they want to portray. So yeah, that's sort of how like the color palette and the like the base of the design came about. Along the similar lines, and this is the last thing, second to last thing I'll ask you because I know people got things to do, is obviously there's your style, there's your feel, there's your look, but you are also a black woman in the creative space in the United States of America. What is that like right. for you as a person, as Lacey, as much as it is as an artist? I mean, or just like how you living, artist. you know what I mean? Like, you're doing a lot of big deals, you know what I'm saying? Like, what's it like, <laughs> you know? It's interesting because I feel, like, I feel super blessed and... I feel super privileged to be in this space and to have garnered the things that I've done so far. I also feel like it's my duty to do a whole lot of ish. One of them is just like to just keep going. (laughs) That's the hardest part, to like not give up. But also to just show up as myself and to show up as authentically as possible. And there's been a lot of stuff this year in particular that has let me know that that translates through my work and just through social media and like the the projects and all that stuff that I take on. And I think that's the biggest piece that draws people to both my work and to me, it's just showing up and not being afraid to be a black woman in this space and not, and being strong within that. I'm speaking up for myself, letting it be known when I'm in a room, being bold and colorful and just unapologetic in the things that I do. I think that's very, I think that translates very well, especially for black people and black women, because in a lot of different forms from sports to, you know, working in corporate, all these different things, it it feels like you can't show up as yourself a lot. And so by me just simply existing and going for what I want, I think gives people a lot of inspiration, and a lot of hope. At the same time, you know, it, it's a lot to carry because I'm in a space now where I'm like, all right, I'm doing all this stuff. I know I'm doing my job at giving back as an inspiration and like 
you know, mentoring people, always at least trying to be somewhat accessible to answer questions and stuff. But right. the biggest thing I'm thinking about now is like, okay, how do I, like, how do I maximize this and give back on a bigger scale? And they may not necessarily be like, oh, I'm going to donate, uh, I don't know, $10,000 to whatever. It's, it's looking at like, how can I impact my community? How can I gather and, and just sort of give back in a way that's filling to my community with also like protecting my energy and my space too. So right. No, <laughs> I get that. Those. I get that 100%, yo. I get that 100%. <laughs> so no, it, it, it's, a, it's a blessing and it's, it's something that I don't take for granted and it's also something that I'm like, yo, if I'm in this if I'm in this space, how can I bring more people that look like me into this space and how can I give back and put money on put money in people's accounts? Like just what what can I do? So that's something that's been weighing heavily on me recently of figuring out what that looks like for my community. Well that leads into my last question, which you can keep a little bit more personal. But you know, what's next for you? You know what I'm saying? Like I, I get what you're saying generally. Not that that's less important, but you know, is there anything on the horizon that you're really looking forward towards doing? Yeah, it is actually. I'm in a space going going back to your question about like being multidisciplinary where I'm looking at tapping into different things. So like Sorry, it was like a super loud helicopter or something. I'm looking into like product, so product spaces. And I've, I've done a ton of collaborations, as you know, but I'm curious of like what that looks like directly from me. And I believe that's also a way to share my art and my vision with the world that is more personal and more expressive. And every time, like even with this jersey, I get a message at least once a day that's like, where can I get it? Like it, it, it feels like it's for me. And sometimes my feelings are hurt that I can't just like, give them a link, like, yo, get this here, you know? And so I'm like, okay, I got a job to do. So I'm looking at product and I'm also looking at expanding things beyond myself. So operating more as a studio and taking on different projects that are more multidisciplinary and bringing in creatives of color to help execute this vision and execute different things. So those are the main two things that are like on my plate and weighing heavily on me is creating this product brand and then also kind of getting my, my studio life together. That's what's up, yo. Next show you have, you got to tell me. Me and my girl will come. That'll be fun. Yay! Yeah. <laughs> All right. All right, bet. Black History Always, the podcast. History Always, the podcast. Here's Clinton Yates. This week, we're going to do something called Soundcheck. In short, I play you all some tape of things that matter, and we get it moving from there. On this episode, we'll check in on a slightly more somber note. Tuesday would have marked the 58th birthday of the indomitable Whitney Houston, a legend in the game who passed away on February 11th, 2012, in Los Angeles at the Beverly Hilton, an equally historic hotel. Her career, her energy, her talent are well celebrated in this household. But sometimes, the largeness of those moments makes you forget about the actual times when people show who they are. Here are two moments from Nippy's life that really embody to me what she represented to so many people. The 
first is gospel and R&B colossus B.B. Winans speaking with Tammy Mack on KJLH about a time when he was in an unfairly tough spot and Whitney came to his aid. The house, the first house I purchased, mm-hmm. the bank changed their mind because they felt like I was a risk. Musicians are a risk when it comes to buying things. You know, They really felt like you were black, but I ain't going to go there. Probably that too. Yeah. So instead of the 10%, they wanted me to put down 50%, which I didn't have the 50%. Long story short, Whitney flew in and said, take me to that house that you was going to buy. I was like, why? And we went through it and she said, oh, this looks like your bathroom. Oh, this looks like my brother's kitchen. And we went to the side. She said, here. And she gave me a envelope open it up and it was the 50 percent that was needed to put down on the house she said i told you this was your house and i said wow girl wow girl the second is from 1999 we're talking back in the era when rosie o'donnell was still doing things like singing little ditties on stage as the host of the 41st annual grammy award show whitney came out with sting Bear with the audio, but just know that the person rooting Lauryn Hill on as she won the Album of the Year award is absolutely Whitney Houston cheering El Boogie all the way up onto the stage the entire time. All right, everyone, it's time for the last award tonight. Clap your hands, y'all, it's all right. Come on, clap your hands, y'all, it's all right. Whitney Houston and sing! This is the category, Album of the Year. This year, all five nominations feature female vocalists, a fact that wasn't lost on me. And it wasn't lost on me either. No, man. Mm-hmm. Is that me or you? No, it's me. Okay. okay. For Album of the Year, the nominations are... The Glow Session, Cheryl Cole. Version 2.0, garbage. The miseducation of Lauren Hill. Ray of Light, Madonna. Come on over, Shania Twain. I believe in And the album of the year is. The Miseducation of Lauryn Hill. Lauryn Hill. Thank you to Lauryn Hill. Engineers Commissioner Gordon, Matt Howe, Storm Jefferson, Ken Johnston, Tony Prendo, Warren Leiter, Chris Tice, and Johnny White. This is so amazing. I, I thank you, God. What a moment. Strive to celebrate your people. It's worth it, y'all. Thanks for listening to Black History Always. Follow us wherever you listen to your podcast.